Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. It's quite an introduction. I have to follow Lauren Daigle. He's like the guy with the monkey that came on after the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> so, uh, as Pastor Garth said, we're going to jump into uh, Acts 13 again um, and talk about uh, what is a, a, a great image, a great picture of ministry. Um, we see all of the aspects of what we uh, have seen, what we do see, and what we will see in our personal ministries, in our personal church, and in what we decide to do uh, as individuals and as a church family. So the first three verses, uh, actually I'll tell you right up front, we're going to spend a lot of time in what they call the pocket today. So uh, we're going to be in the Bible, we're going to be in the Word, it's not going to be a lot of... Um, digressions, but uh, this, is, this, is, this is important stuff that I want to make sure we spend a good amount of time uh, diving into and, and, and really uh, get to the marrow of the, uh, of the passage. So the first three verses of Acts 13 uh, sort of set the stage, as, as Pastor Garth said. Uh, we've got the church at Antioch. Um, we don't know how many prophets and teachers we have, but Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manan and Saul, uh, who is still Saul, by the way, uh, but only until the end uh, um, of my sermon today. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to that later. Uh, so they're all worshiping and fasting. The Holy Spirit uh, asks that Saul and Barnabas be set aside, and this is uh, to become uh, Saul's uh, first missionary journey, but again, we don't know that yet. Saul and Barnabas are identified specifically, as the scripture says, for the work which the Holy Spirit has called them. Um, this is the first point where we see sort of a contrast between the, the biblical concept of calling and our contemporary idea of vocation. Uh, we tend to break things into two categories. Uh, pursuits of aptitude, the things that we do, that we can do, that we're good at. And pursuits of interest, the things that we want to do, the things that we choose to do. Uh, sometimes those things align. Uh, but primarily, we're making the judgments. When we're younger, our parents or teachers are making the judgments. That's what you're good at. That's what you should do. That's where you belong. That's, that's what you need to put your emphasis into. That's what you need to focus on. But in this case, we've got the Holy Spirit saying, this is, this is your calling. Later in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul's going to write, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul's telling the churches, God is going to select you. He's going to call you to that role in which you can best serve his kingdom. The Holy Spirit is going to make that call for you. What we didn't see at the church at Antioch was a debate about who was the best people to send out. We didn't see an argument of, I'd rather go, why not me? We didn't see that political side of things, that jealousy. The calling, by the way, uh, the ministry that we're talking about, is not now or, or has it ever been, uh, strictly a pastoral or vocational ministry. We're talking about service in whatever means we can. We're going to talk about that a little later, what that ministry looks like personally. God calls us into ministry not based on the skills that we identify, again, not the parents, not the teachers, not the family, but in what God decides is our best service for him. In Romans, Paul assures believers that in terms of their salvations, these gifts, these callings are irrevocable. When we're called to God, we remain in his service. And no one, no situation, no enemy can affect that. 
in this way to this church and to this church, the Holy Spirit calls. The second thing that we see is the support of the believing church in this call of these men. We don't see the, pol- the politics. We don't see the jealousy. We don't see the debates. We don't see the arguments. What we see is a united group of believers embracing brothers in the faith. We hear that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas and sent them off. This was unity. This was support. We'll talk a little bit about what support means in just a moment. Commissioning and appointing is the role of the church, whether in formal, vocational roles, or for the approved activities among the faith. We see it here with small groups. We see it here with leaderships. We talked about discipleships a moment ago. It's on the wall. We want to multiply. We want to serve. And this is the role of the church. We've done it here. We've laid our hands on those that we've sent off on behalf of the church. Ephesians 4.4 tells us there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And this is what the church, this is, the, this is what the church is doing here. If you remember way back in Acts 6, uh, when the seven were, were chose to serve, literally to serve, they were set before the apostles, they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Again, this is a pattern, this is what we're seeing, is that the church's job is to commission In the same way you have believers supporting Saul and Barnabas, again, still Saul, they're pledging support and agreement and belief in the mission of of their brothers and support of their mission to serve the risen Lord. They're together in the church body, and they're being commissioned by the church. The next thing that we see here in terms of mission progression, pardon me, is that the believer commits. The next words we read in verse 4 are, so being sent out. It's kind of matter of fact. There's not a lot of substance there. They simply went. First Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you will also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. They went. The commitment to the calling of the Spirit is an exceptional acceptance and duty in light of what they had seen. Some of the men that they knew personally who were original followers of Jesus Christ, original disciples, had been killed and they they had seen it. They had lived through this. They had been persecuted, killed, imprisoned, and yet they went because of their calling. Their commitment to the Spirit's calling and God's mission is unquestioned. And again, supported by the Scriptures. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. This is about commitment. It might be a little easier when we're talking about mission roles that don't involve persecution or fear of death. A little bit. Our mission and ministry pursuits have rarely meant physical harm. But they haven't been without cost. Romans 8.28 famously tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Our responsibility to that calling is obedience and commitment. Whether we as believers are called uh, to reach the unreached through missions, or to join a worship team, or to serve during a, a, a service, to meet with a small group, to simply be the Christian representative at your workplace, to be the, the anchor of your family when it comes to your faith, the commitment is not to the ministry but to God the Father. 
Our role is not to decide what is needed, but to be prepared when the call comes. We saw this as dedication from Saul and Barnabas. Uh, And we're called to meet their devotion to simply go. As believers saved by Christ and, and who've accepted his invitation to his family, been called to his ministry, our devotion is expected to be the same because the believer commits. Now, right now we're going to take just, just a little, this is as far afield as we're going to get. Uh, a lot of times we, we, as human beings, struggle to conceptualize um, things that we read in the Bible, whether that's distance, time, Space, cost. Uh, we read words, we read names, and we go, okay. So we went from Antioch, we went to pay for, oh, I don't know what that means. I read the words, I keep going. Not that I don't care, but there's no concept. So authors and publishers and producers do their best to try to conceptualize. What, is it, what does that mean? How do we put it in terms that people can appreciate? So, enter Stanford University. In 2012, Stanford University came up with a program that was called the Geospatial Network Model of the Roman World, New Edition. Luckily for us, it's also called Orbis, a little easier to remember. Think of it as Google Maps for the biblical world. What they did was they they plotted and they charted, using historical documents, including the Bible, all trade routes... All travel routes, all cities, all towns, all settlements. They came up with uh, data regarding uh, times of year, what roads were passable, what means could be used, donkeys, wagons, boats, ships. And they came up with what the costs looked like based on a day's wages. What they did was they took the travels They inputted everything into this machine and said, here, have at it. Now, is it 100% accurate? I certainly hope so. And I absolutely do not believe so. So, if we plug in this voyage that we read right here, so we're talking about commitment again. So what does that commitment look like? If we put it in the terms that we value, which is not what the Bible is professing, but if we put it in our terms, what does that commitment look like? Here's what we get. The fastest journey... From Antioch to Paphos, five and a half days. This is a five and a half day journey. It is a total of 542 kilometers. It involves taking two boats, and the cost of this journey was 150 denarii. What does that mean? Well, let's bring that back around. The books of Matthew and John tell us that one denarius was roughly a day's wages for the average manual laborer. So 150 of those means you're talking about this journey costing Saul and Barnabas six months' wages. That's commitment. And it's commitment from the church. You're talking about a five-day journey over 500 kilometers that cost six months' wages. That's what we're talking about when we say commitment. I hope, I hope that sort of gives it context for you. That certainly made a difference for me. I went, okay, now we're talking about something. Because when I think, hey, here's an opportunity to serve, and it's how much money? 
I can tell you, it's never been six months. It's never been the wages that, that accumulate over six months' time. Commitment is called for by the believer. All right, back on the page. So, uh, Saul and Barnabas reach Paphos and are opposed. Uh, Paphos at the time was the seat of the Roman government um, on the island of Cyprus. We don't know if they, re- if, pardon me, they experienced opposition on the way there. They, we don't know exactly how much opposition, but we do know um, that when they are called to meet with Sergius Paulus, he has uh, a gentleman with him, a magician or sorcerer, depending on your translation, which is, it's exactly what it sounds like. This is someone who is uh, engaged with a devil. This is someone who is using false information to mislead believers, to mislead the public. Bar-Jesus and Elymas are the two names he goes by. Bar-Jesus, Bar, uh, uh, in prefixes, simply means son of. So this, this gentleman was going by the, the moniker, the son of Jesus. He was also going by Elymas, which, which simply translates to sorcerer. So um, the proconsul, uh, it's an elected government official, the verse says he requested to speak to Saul and Barnabas. They didn't force themselves upon him. He said, I, I, I want to hear what's going on here. Saul and Barnabas prepared to share the gospel, knowing, as Paul would later write in Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I'm going to share with Sergius Paulus. The magician interfered, hoping to keep Sergius Paulus from the faith. The Bible warns us in 1 Peter, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. And this was an instance where Saul, Barnabas, and Sergius Paulus are that prey. Here you've got Bar Jesus saying, Nobody's going to hear the gospel today. I'm going to interfere. And we read that he does interfere. Two things that I think it's important we point out. First off, this is a verbal attack. This is not what we hear prior in the book of Acts. This was not a physical attack. They weren't in physical danger. They weren't being threatened. They weren't going to be killed. This attack is what we see. This is a contemporary attack on the gospel. This is one person trying to share the gospel and somebody else saying, not on my watch. This is what we encounter. This is a contemporary gospel attack. So let's notice that. The second thing is, Saul and Barnabas had prepared for this. They were aware there would be opposition. And John, Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Saul and Barnabas were experiencing what we call, what they've always called, spiritual warfare. This is the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, facing the power of evil. This is the same spiritual warfare you and I face, the same that the Bible tells us we will face until Christ's triumphant return. This is what we need to be prepared for. Faithful ministry requires the understanding that there will be opposition. In this way, we need to acknowledge the enemy challenges. The Christian role in response to this challenge, the Bible tells us uh, um, a few important things about Paul's response. And I want to make sure that we see them first. Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. In text it says, full of the Holy Spirit, Paul acted. Paul didn't act on his own. He didn't act in rage. He didn't act in anger. He didn't act in frustration. He didn't physically act out. 
He didn't argue. What he did was, he responded spiritually. Christ assures the believer, Behold, I have given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Confident in that, Saul responded. Second, notice that Paul addresses Elamas directly. Uh, scripture tells us he looked intently at him. He spoke directly to him. Paul didn't address the problem. He addressed the cause of the problem. Often we try to find the path of least resistance. How do I fix the problem? What's the band-aid? Rather than, rather than confrontation, let me find a way to work around it. Here's somebody arguing that, that, that Jesus isn't Lord. What I should do is debate. Let me, let me get the facts. Let me give him more information. Let's get into a back and forth. Let's get into a debate. Let me address what the concern is. But instead, Paul, who by the way is now Paul, we made it, meets head on the challenge. Following Paul's example means identifying, addressing the source of spiritual warfare directly. Paul would later write to the Romans, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the physical manifestation of that. Faithful ministry requires the Christian to engage in warfare for the gospel. Having accepted redemption in life through the blood of Christ, our role is to defend the faith at all costs. In this way, the Christian confronts. Finally, what we see in this passage, Paul's first miracle. Paul is clear that the hand of the Lord does the work, not himself. He's no sorcerer. He's no magician. He's not going to fight kind with kind. He's going to fight evil with the gospel. Elamas is struck blind. Mist and darkness fall up, uh, uh, upon him in a miraculous showing of God's power. Psalm 44 says, uh, through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. And that's what Paul did. Through him. Full of the Spirit, through God, Paul defeated the adversary. Passage continues and tells us that seeing this, the proconsul believed. Not because of the mist or darkness, not because of the blindness, but as verse 12 says, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The teaching. Not the magic, not the mayhem, not the sorcery, but the word. The reason the Son of God appears was to destroy the devil's work. It's 1 John 3, 8. Paul and Barnabas, again, he's Paul, finally. We made it. As ministers of the gospel and missionaries for the word, through their faith and belief in Jesus Christ, met and overcame the enemy. The Almighty conquers. So what are the steps of faithful ministry? How do we follow in our personal ministry... The example set out for us by Paul and Barnabas and the early church and the early believers. Well, we can say uh, the Holy Spirit calls, the church commissions, the believer commits, the enemy challenges, the Christian confronts, the Almighty conquers. We can follow the words of theologian A.W. Tozer who said, Let every man abide in the calling wherein he is called, and his work will be as sacred as the work of the ministry. It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. 
Put another way, before his untimely death in in 1997, Christian singer-songwriter Rich Mullins said, I would like to encourage you to stop thinking of what you're doing as ministry. Start realizing that your ministry is how much of a tip you leave when you eat in a restaurant. When you leave a hotel room, do you leave it messed up? Do you flush your own toilet? Your ministry is the way that you love people. And you love people when you write something that is encouraging to them. You love people when you call your wife and say, I'm going to be late for dinner. Instead of letting her burn the meal. You love people when maybe you cook a meal for your wife sometimes because you know she's tired. Loving people is being respectful towards them. This is my hope for us this morning and and going forward that, that we as a church seek the calling that God has for us and that the Spirit puts on our hearts. Um, Notice that throughout this passage, the catalyst of Paul and Barnabas was always the Holy Spirit. They were called by the Spirit. They were sent by the Spirit. They were empowered by the Spirit. It's the Spirit at work in the believer that turns action into ministry. Pastor and author Mark Driscoll wrote, the difference between your ability and your calling is the grace of God. So as a church, I pray that that we don't seek out ministry opportunities or ways to serve, but we seek to have the Spirit active in our lives. That we have the Spirit call us to be ministers of the gospel for Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we become ministers of the gospel. The first step in this for us, as it was for the believers uh, at Antioch, is prayer. As a church, uh, I hope we can make that uh, perhaps this week's focus. Earnest, personal time in prayer, inviting the Spirit to ignite us to become that church on fire. To accept His call and be His hands and feet here on earth where God decides that's appropriate for us. Where God has chosen that calling for each and every one of us based on His knowledge of our person which is far deeper than anything that we could ever imagine. I've worked with, uh, I've worked with a number of teams in the past. and Some, some of you know my, my background working with sports teams and sports ministry. And One of the things that they struggle with often uh, when we talk to them, I said, what can we talk about? One of the things that comes up a lot is prayer. Different faiths, different practices, and teams say, individuals say, do we have to pray at a certain time? Do we have to pray in a certain way? Do we have to say certain words? Do we have to say this? And what, what I like to use as an illustration, and, and I certainly won't take uh, any credit whatsoever for it, but what we like to, to tell the individuals is, and use as an illustration, is from the book of Nehemiah. There's an exchange at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah that, that, that is just priceless in my eyes. When he's depressed, Nehemiah goes to the king at the time, uh, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes says to him, um, and some of you know the story, says to him, what, why, are, why are you so upset? What's wrong? I can see that something's wrong. What is it? And there's a beautiful moment where in between being asked that question and answering that question, Nehemiah prays. These prayers for the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and to help us with that calling, these don't have to be hour-long prayers every morning or or long recitations of of rote prayer. 
These can happen in the blink of an eye. So I hope that we can see the, the economy of prayer, the efficiency of prayer, and the fact that we can come to our Father in the blink of an eye. We can ask for that guidance on a moment's notice in no time at all. So let's take advantage of those moments, those blinks and those gaps in life, that moment in traffic, that second before we reach for the phone to check our whatever. And let's ask how we can be more like him, how we can honor him, and how we can glorify his mighty name. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time spent in your word this morning and and for the fellowship we enjoy as members of your church. Lord, as we take inventory of the ways and means to honor you, as we seek to be faithful ministers of your gospel, representatives of your son, help us to remember that first and foremost, ministry is about love. Help us to be the love that so many seek in this world. Help us to share the love of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as we go forward this week, fill us with your Spirit. Remind us to be faithful. Convict us to be truthful. And enable us to be fruitful in our walk to be more like Christ. We thank you for this time together, Father. In your holy, holy name we pray. Amen. Test one, two. Test, 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 test. Test, test one, two. Test one, two. Test one, two. Test one, two.